Hey, it's Erica. I just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to Global News What Happened To ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. This episode is brought to you by Bumble. So you want to find someone you're compatible with, specifically someone who's ready for a serious connection, totally open to having kids in the future, is a tall rock climbing Libra, and loves rom-coms with vegan pizzas on Tuesdays just as much as you do. Bumble knows that you know exactly what's right for you. So whatever it is you're looking for, Bumble's features can help you find it. Date now on Bumble. On April 14, 2014, Hanatu Stevens spent the day studying and preparing for the final exam of secondary school. She was in bed inside the school's hostel along with her classmates. In the middle of the night, they were awoken by loud crashes and bangs coming from outside. She heard the voices of several men. They came at night around 1 a.m., We were in the hostel. We heard them. Then we heard our gate being broken open. They entered the school and said they were soldiers and asked us to assemble at one place. We believed them and gathered. But these men weren't sent by the Nigerian government. They were members of the feared extremist group Boko Haram. And Hanatu Stevens was about to be one of 276 young women abducted that night. I'm journalist Erica Bella. In this episode, I'll share Hanatu's harrowing story and find out how she was freed and what happened after. This is part two of Global News What Happened to Boko Haram and the Chibok Girls. The night of April 14th, 2014 is seared into Hanatu Stevens' mind. In the early morning hours, men entered the hostel of their school. One of them asked, where are the boys? We told them that the boys were day students. He asked us to leave the hostel and move to the class area. The girls followed their orders. But then, Hanatu overheard a conversation that disturbed her. One of them said they should pour petrol on us and burn us alive. Another one said, no, they are girls. We should not kill them. The men shoved the young women out of the school and set it on fire. Hanatu and her classmates watched in horror as it went up in flames. They felt the heat of the blazing fire. They inhaled the smoke. When they set the building on fire, we were sitting nearby. One of them said we should leave because the heat was affecting us. We moved away from the school area. Then one of them asked us to go home. But the girls didn't get to go home. And their future was in the hands of these strangers. Another fighter said no. He would not go back to the forest empty-handed. Since he didn't find anything to loot, he said he was taking the girls in his vehicle instead. One of them said, no, since they are girls, we should allow them to go home and get married. But the fighter was adamant. He was angry he did not find any food. They asked us to walk towards the direction of the forest, to where they parked their vehicles. 
They surrounded us on all sides and walked with us. We did not know where they were taking us to. At a bridge on the way to the town of Damboa, we were forced to board a truck. We did not know where we were going. They told us they were taking us to the barracks. Hanatu and her classmates had no idea where they were headed. As the journey continued, they would stop at some point in the night and cook food, but none of us ate. We asked where they were taking us to. They said they were taking us to the barracks. We did not know what they meant by the barracks. They told us to board the vehicle and continue moving. We spent three days traveling to Sambiza. We did not know what Sambiza was at the time. If you recall from the last episode, Sambisa Forest is located in Borno State, in northeastern Nigeria, about 90 kilometers away from Chibok. It's a shelter for Boko Haram, the place where the insurgents were known to bring back the women and girls they kidnapped. When we reached the destination, they asked us to get out of the truck. We sat under the trees. They brought water and jerry cans for us to drink. They brought food, but we did not eat because we did not know our fate. We kept crying. We did not know what would happen to us. We cried and prayed. They asked us, do you know where you are? We answered no. They said, you are in Sambiza. This is our barracks. We abducted you because you are students. We brought you here for you to practice religion and worship God in the forest. We cried and begged them to take us to our parents. They said if we converted to the religion, they would take us back to our parents. The events of that night were unprecedented. Up until this point, Nigeria had never seen this sort of mass kidnapping before. Family members called on the government to act, and initially there was some hesitation. Experts say the governments were in denial. It's something that David Otto spoke to me about. He's a counterterrorism and organized crime specialist. It was kind of a, a shocking incident, um, not in terms of the fact that it was an abduction, but the, the sheer number of girls that were abducted and, and the logistics that you know, could be imagined to have been used to carry out that abduction was quite unbelievable. And, and, and this is why it generated a, an international uproar and attention. Boko Haram had been active for several years before the Chibok abductions. There had been hundreds of other young women, girls, and even boys ripped from their homes when the terrorist group raided villages in Nigeria. It wasn't until the Bring Back Our Girls campaign went viral that the Nigerian government jumped into action. That's because there was a lot of pressure on the government to bring back the girls safely. This kind of international mobilization was something that hadn't happened before. David said Boko Haram knew this, and they used the international attention on the Chibok girls as a golden bargaining chip. He said they used the girls to strong-arm the government. I think what has not really been spoken much about is the fact that Boko Haram uh, treated its victims um, differently because of the attention that was given to the Chibok girls. So they were kind of um, a special victim, um, a special group of victims uh, as compared to other victims. So um, the, the Chibok girl for me was a, a very a significant turning point in the 
in the way that um, the, you know the world looked at the seriousness of, of the insurgency, but also um, from a strategic point, um, you know, it gave uh, Boko Haram a, a global recognition that, in my opinion, you know, they didn't deserve. The Nigerian government would begin negotiating with Boko Haram to secure the release of the Chibok girls. Meanwhile, in the Sembisa forest, Hanatu said Boko Haram members told them about the negotiations. They would say, we asked the government to pay ransom so we can take you home, but they don't want to pay. We were always crying because we did not know where we were, and we were in the hands of bad people. We were sad that our parents were worried for us, and the government was always talking about us. I was worried about home. At night, it was complete darkness. You couldn't even see the person you were sitting next to. We were scared when we woke up to go to the bathroom at night. As months went by, Hanatu lived in constant fear. Our abductors had guns, military-grade guns. There were no brick houses in Sambiza, only grass houses. We were kept in grass huts. After three months in Sambiza, we were moved to the town of Guaza, where we lived for six months. What scared me was the fear that they would kill me. They came and threatened to kill us if the military attacked the forest. The way they dressed was frightening. You could only see their eyes. I thought they would kill me. She was held captive, witnessed and experienced unimaginable atrocities, not knowing when or if she will ever be freed. As I mentioned earlier, the Nigerian government initiated contact with Boko Haram after receiving mounting pressure from both people inside and outside of Nigeria. David Otto took part in some of the negotiations and said at the time, people were only focused on one thing, the release of the Chibok girls. You know, the, the general feeling, um, you know, um, the majority of Nigerians wanted the, the Chibok girls to be released. Now, but what the majority of Nigerians did not know was, you know, what it takes it takes to release these girls. You know, people were not interested in the process. They were interested in the results. So um, even though the, you know, the whole idea of negotiation was being flaunted uh, in the social, on social media or negotiate, you know, release the Chibok girls, bring back our girls, you know, people did not appreciate what it takes you know, to release these girls. It, it wasn't going to be a um, an SAS mission to storm Sambisa Forest and grab the girls out of, you know, the hands of Boko Haram. It, it wasn't going to work that way. That had been tried. That had been assessed. It, it, was, it was seen as suicidal and impossible. So the, the idea um, was that people wanted the girls to be released. They did not really care what it took for the girls to be released. David said one of the most challenging parts of negotiations was getting in contact with Boko Haram commanders. He said in order to do that, the Nigerian government found intermediaries, people who were on the ground in Maiduguri and who would be able to talk to members of Boko Haram. I mean, they could get in contact with Boko Haram 
they could talk about the possibility of a release, but you know they didn't have the direct backing of the government, so they needed uh, to seek uh, some assistance and some support uh, for the facilitation of that process by an international organization or, or an international country. And, and this is where the, um, the, the Swiss uh, government um, came in uh, through uh, their counterparts in Abuja. And, and that is how the, you know, the government of Switzerland um, you know, was contacted and they began to liaise with uh, the local stakeholders. David said his role was to coach them on how to secure the release of not just the Chibok girls, but others who were being held captive. The international community was a lot more interested in the Chibok girls, of course, because it had made you know, news and it was trending. But there were more than the Chibok girls in custody. Um, and for myself and my organization, it was a matter of bringing back all the captives. To complicate matters further, Boko Haram had broken up into different factions. Abu Bakr Shakao was the leader, but there had been a splinter group, Ansaru, that had formed. Members of the Ansaru faction believed Shakao was too violent and was killing both Christians and Muslims. And from there, other factions within Boko Haram continued to form. That made negotiating with the group challenging. And David said the Chibok girls were not being held within the same faction. So in order for you to get the maximum number of girls, you would have to have contact with as many other commanders who had these girls than just Abu Bakr Shikawa alone. As negotiations began, there was one faction that was interested in an amnesty. They wanted to lay down their arms. They wanted to surrender, but they did not want to surrender in Nigeria. They, they made it very clear. And, and this was a faction that was linked directly to Shikawa on the um, one guy who um, was the second in command called Mamanu. You know, Mamanu's faction, you know, they were very keen to surrender, but they wanted to surrender in a third country, any country that, you know, was not involved in the insurgency. So not Cameroon, not Chad, not Niger Republic, and not Nigeria. So what we had to do, um, which is something that I that I did was to look for a third party country. And the third party country at that time was, you know, uh, we, we had the opportunity to speak to the, U- the Ugandan government. And the Ugandan government expressed um, its willingness to host the negotiation, but also to accept uh, these fighters under a DDRR program. You know, they did that for two reasons. One, because Uganda also had an experience um, with the former LRA and ADF fighters, but also because you know it was good for the image of Uganda to show that um, they were doing something to end the, the Boko Haram crisis in, in, in the Lake Chad Basin. So they accepted to do that. David said those negotiations took time, which caused the faction to panic. The insurgents ended up backing out of an amnesty deal. Instead, they wanted a ransom for the release of the Chibok girls. So, you know, at that point in time, you know, it became very clear to me that that approach was not the best approach. Um, But 
you know, the Swiss government went ahead you know, with, you know, what they had in hand, which was get the girls released and, you know, exchange for whatever prisoners or whatever ransom, you know, they're asking for. Nigeria's government negotiated with Boko Haram for their release, with mediation help from the Swiss government and the International Committee of the Red Cross. In October 2016, 21 schoolgirls were freed. And seven months later, another 82 young women were released. The Nigerian government said five Boko Haram commanders from the extremist group were released in exchange for the girls' freedom. More than three years after she was kidnapped, Hanatu was freed. She was one of 82 schoolgirls released in May 2017. When the ransom was paid, they released us. 82 of us were released at the time I regained my freedom. But her life would not be the same. Hanatu explained to me that while she was held captive, the Nigerian government conducted airstrikes on the Sambisa forest. During one of those airstrikes, one of her legs was badly hurt, and it had to be amputated. We were sitting together when the military planes dropped bombs. Some of us died, and some of us got injured. I lost my leg. I couldn't help but think, why would the Nigerian government launch these attacks if they knew captives could be injured? It was a question I brought to David Otto. So when these airstrikes were happening, there were airstrikes that were targeted towards the insurgents. But unfortunately, you know, um, in some occasions, the areas where where they targeted, you know, had the chibokeos. And... Because the Chibogas were being killed by these airstrikes, Boko Haram was using it uh, to say, stop the airstrikes or you'll be killing the girls. Of the 276 young women taken by Boko Haram, 107 girls were freed and 57 escaped. 112 young women are still missing. Some are feared dead. This means dozens of families and loved ones are in the dark, unsure if they will ever see their girls again. Right now, you might be wondering, what happened to the girls once they were freed? Hanatu was left injured after enduring years of trauma. But once the government paid the ransom to Boko Haram, they weren't immediately reunited with their families. Instead, they were taken to Abuja, Nigeria's capital. Osayo Jigo is the director of Amnesty International Nigeria. She explained that Nigerian officials wanted to speak with the girls first. There was a lot of secrecy around what government was doing with these returned girls. Of course, we know that they were also trying to get information of them, which could help them in their fight against Boko Haram. But the the welfare of the children and the need for the parents to be reunited with their children should have been paramount and they should have put in place certain uh, policies, processes to facilitate that. The girls were eventually reunited with their families. They were offered counseling and the opportunity to go back to school. Life would never be the same again. 
but these girls would be able to begin the healing process in safety. The Bring Back Our Girls campaign put an international spotlight on Boko Haram and brought attention to the horrors and atrocities committed by the extremist group. And that spotlight allowed Hanatu and a few others their freedom. But you heard David Otto mention that the abduction in Chibok wasn't Boko Haram's first, and it certainly wasn't their last. There have been countless other women, young girls, and boys who have been taken from their families. Some of the young women are forced into marriages. Others become soldiers for the group and are enslaved to commit heinous acts. What they would witness is unimaginable. And if they escape, the road to recovery is long and arduous. How does one ever recover from being held captive by a violent extremist group? What does that entail? Dr. Fatima Akilu is a psychologist in Nigeria. And in 2016, she created the Neem Foundation with her sister to provide psychological support to survivors of Boko Haram. A lot of the work that I do is with the women that work um, captured by Boko Haram and have returned to their communities. But I also have worked with the wives of senior commanders of Boko Haram. I've also and continue to work with a lot of the men that were kidnapped or joined Boko Haram voluntarily, as well as uh, commanders who have left the group voluntarily. And I also work with the victims of Boko Haram. So these are people whose communities were destroyed by Boko Haram, who, whose family members were killed, who were, who were maimed by Boko Haram. In her years of work, there's been one thing that she says is consistent with each survivor. People who have been uh, affected by this conflict are traumatized. And we are going to be witnessing a generational, if not multi-generational trauma. And a lot of this trauma will be passed on from generation to generation. So I think that's the first thing that struck me is how long-term this pain is. Dr. Akilu was intimately familiar with the plight of the kidnapped girls. We had knew uh, long before the Chibok girls were uh, kidnapped that Bukaram had been kidnapping uh, young girls. So it wasn't the first, but I think that just the audacity of it in terms of the numbers. And they had also gone to a school where they had uh, burnt a lot of boys in their dormitories, which was uh, stunning and horrific. It didn't garner the kind of international attention that Chibok girls did. But we, at that time, we knew what Boko Haram were capable of. I mentioned this earlier, but the Chibok girls who either managed to escape or who were released were given certain protections, psychological supports, and access to higher education. But I wondered, what happens to those who weren't part of the Chibok abductions and the Bring Back Our Girls campaign? There were countless others who escaped the clutches of Boko Haram. Had they been promised protection or education? Were they able to return home to their families? Dr. Akilu says she can't begin to express how unequal the response has been. I, I think one of the things that uh, I find very frustrating doing this work is we work with thousands, literally thousands, of uh, young women and girls that are very similar to the Chibok girls. Absolutely no different. They were kidnapped uh, by Boko Haram and forced into the group. Some of them were also kidnapped from school. So literally, for some, absolutely no difference. The Chibok girls did not experience a different experience 
within the group than all the other girls that are coming out of the group. It's exactly the same. And it's even worse for the thousands of girls that I see because they don't have that government support. They don't have the mobilization of resources. They don't have the access to uh, trauma support and the education that has been offered to Chibok girls. They literally are left to themselves. It's only uh, NGOs, international and domestic like mine that are working with these uh, girls. I, I don't see any government at all. Dr. Akilu also said when individuals escape, they aren't always welcomed back home. Usually if uh, communities know that they were actively uh, involved with Boko Haram or they joined voluntarily, uh, but for the women, especially those who are coming back either pregnant or with babies, uh, we have seen really atrocious treatment from uh, their communities, sometimes from their families, uh, from their loved ones. Um, some of them are ostracized. They're not allowed to rejoin the family homes. Uh, some of them are denied opportunities for livelihood. And even when they go out to uh, seek ways to uh, provide livelihood opportunities for themselves, people will not buy goods from them. So they are sort of really uh, victimized twice, uh, first by Boko Haram and then secondly by their communities. And it takes a really a lot of work to change uh, people's attitudes to really see them as the victims that they really are and in need of support and protection. This is something Brennan Leffler witnessed when he visited Nigeria. If you recall from the last episode, Brennan worked on a documentary with Canadian journalist Melissa Fung called Captive. He told me about a mother and daughter he met while investigating a similar story. The mother and daughter who we interviewed, Hawa and her daughter Asmao, they ended up going to a different village than they were from. And a lot of other former captives were there as well because they weren't welcome in their home anymore. They go wherever they can where people don't know them usually. Because again, when you come back from them, there's all kinds of suspicion about whether you're a spy, whether you may be coming back to bomb uh, the village. Um, it's really difficult for these girls. Dr. Akilu says these are roadblocks that the Nigerian government has to take into account. And I, I think it's a big mistake for us as a country because if we don't deal with trauma, collective trauma of all the, all the people who've gone through this experience, we will continue to have uh, problems down the line. Uh, these young girls without intervention cannot function as full members of society. And I think that will only uh, garner more problems for us as a society, as a community and, and as a country. Uh, we're not talking about hundreds of, of people. We're talking about thousands. And if you're talking about girls, uh, when we talk about um, girls' education, girls' rights, advancement for girls and women, yet we have thousands of them that we are ignoring and they will never reach their full potentials because they're so traumatized, uh, they're so broken, uh, they're not going to be able to partake in all this um, march towards uh, female equality, female rights, female access to education, female access to um, employment, uh, these girls will never be able to meet, uh, to, to realize their dreams. They will never be able to uh, 
achieve uh, any kind of self-actualization goals because they just uh, too traumatized. And uh, at the time when they need support the most, they've been let down by their government, by society, and also by the rest of the world. That when we're so captivated on just two. 76 and providing resources just for those. That's where organizations like the Neem Foundation step in. We have a program which we call the Yellow Ribbon Initiative, whereby uh, it's mostly for uh, people who have uh, spent time with Boko Haram, who have come out of captivity. So it has several components. So we engage them on an ideological level because a lot of them that come out have been brainwashed by Boko Haram, and actually some of them will tell you that they have moved from their country and that Nigeria is not a country and things like that. So you have to engage on them to disengage them from the Boko Haram ideology. We also have a critical thinking uh, uh, element uh, of our program because what we find is that Boko Haram really uh, promotes very linear kind of thinking, regressive thinking, because they don't want people that can question, uh, not surprisingly. Um, we also have a, a sports aspect of it. So what they do is we use sports as a means to introduce a peace curriculum. And we have a values-based curriculum. So it's really peace through sports, teaching them tolerance, uh, kindness, how to work together, integrity, things like that. And we have a psychological component, uh, of course. So we do a lot of trauma work with them, we do art therapy, and we also do basic skills acquisition, literacy classes, and we do a pre and post assessment. So we do have a scale that looks at all this stuff, which we do, we administer before you enter the program, and then after to see if people have shifted in any of those areas, whether it's attitudes, beliefs, ideology, uh, trauma. The program is about 12 to 18 months long. And after they've completed the program, the Neem Foundation helps to put survivors in school or teach them skills that will help them earn a livelihood. Since 2016, about 7,500 young people have gone through this program that is funded through different national and international partners. Dr. Akilu says there are an additional 20,000 people who have received trauma support from the Neem Foundation. It's been seven years since the Chibok abductions. So I wondered, where is Boko Haram now? Are they still a threat? David Otto says over the years, the extremist group has weakened because it's splintered or broken up. So you've got two groups um, and two factions that are occupying areas in, in the Mandara Mountains, uh, the Sambisa Forest, the Lake Chad Fringes, but significantly, the presence of Boko Haram coming towards the areas like Maiduguri have been, you know, uh, reduced. You do have attacks, uh, sporadic attacks here and there, uh, from time to time. But most of the of the attacks that take place now are attacks which are meant to undermine the government's um, uh, strategy, because you know the government keeps on saying we've defeated them, you know, they, um, they are technically defeated. So the group now launches guerrilla-style attacks. David said the Nigerian army, air force, and navy has worked together to slow down Boko Haram. 
They also started Operation Safe Corridor, which is a tool that gives space for members to surrender and be de-radicalized and rehabilitated. But David said Boko Haram is certainly not gone. This is a movement that continuously infiltrates um, local communities, um, continuously uh, blends into uh, the population, a very extensive area to really uh, cover. Um, nothing that has been experienced before in any part of the world, as huge as the Lake Chad Basin is, nowhere compared to the, um, the square kilometers, uh, square mile that, uh, you know, ISIS and Al-Qaeda, you know, covered uh, in, in the borders uh, between Iraq and Syria. You know, I think even much more dense um, forested period. So the Lake Chad Basin is, um, you know, if, if I were to describe this, is, is an ideal spot for Boko Haram to, uh, to really hide because the Nigerian government doesn't have uh, the kind of capacity, um, even if they were to bring in uh, the entire regional army to deploy in this area, it will still be insufficient to and mop out these groups without them finding a hiding area. David also mentioned that while the Nigerian government has made efforts to combat Boko Haram, he said further progress will require trust. The government has to demonstrate its ability to protect the people so that the people can feel free to or feel safe enough uh, to report when they see something. Uh, then they will say something. Uh, but you know, that is a challenge, uh, that civil-military relationship that has grown from people not trusting the army because of um, you know, abuses in the past. But this, this is a very complex war. And um, I believe that the only way that uh, the Nigerian government can defeat Boko Haram is if it works with the regional partners, if it works effectively with the international community. Terrorism is everybody's concern. If it affects one country, it will have an impact directly or indirectly to the rest of the world. And I think, you know, no country should be isolated, you know, in, in fighting this war. No, um, no one or human being or no, no citizen uh, should see themselves as sitting on the fence. It is the people's war, and I think the only way the military can win it is if the people fight it. There is one woman who has joined the fight and has been actively working in Nigeria to dismantle Boko Haram. She has seen the hardships Boko Haram has brought to her country, and she wants to stop it. My name is Aisha. Bakari Gombi. I am 42 years old. I started hunting at the age of eight, since I was a child. My father used to go hunting with me. He would carry me on his shoulders, and gradually, I started learning. As he went with me, then I learned it and didn't throw away the family tradition. I started hunting Boko Haram after the insurgents took over my town in 2014, and when the hunters were called upon to assist the military in the war against insurgency. I decided to work with other hunters for peace to return to our country. She's known as the Boko Haram Huntress, and at one point was in command of over 180 men. We fight them in the forest, and whoever we find in their hideout is a suspected Boko Haram, because good people will have no business in those places. 
I fought in the forests in the northeast, from Gombe to Borno. I fought Boko Haram in nine local government areas in Adamawa State. There was a time I spent 62 days in Madagali fighting among men. When Aisha goes out to hunt for Boko Haram, she says she carries a double-barrel gun. Our weapons are not like theirs. I and my men are using less sophisticated weapons. The biggest we have is a double-barrel gun. They have superior weapons. We don't even know the name of their guns. So we depend on God, and we can face them with what we have to be victorious. Aisha has inspired other women to fight on the ground. Their motivation to stop Boko Haram is seeing firsthand the damage the insurgents have done. Boko Haram are not fair to the country and to women and children. They devastated the economy and stopped children from going to school. They persecuted women. They brought hardship. That is why I saw the need for Nigerians to stand up and assist the security forces. I hope the insurgency will end in our lifetime, because if it continues, the future of our children could not be guaranteed. As women like Aisha take up arms to fight Boko Haram, other women, like Hanatu, can't go home. Boko Haram still attacks my village. And I had to relocate to Yola City because I cannot continue to be on the run from them. Hanatu carries the scars of Boko Haram. And she uses her voice to warn people against the extremist group. There are people who still don't understand Boko Haram. I know them because I lived with them for three years and two weeks. For some people, when they are told Boko Haram is coming, they want to wait until they see them. This is a mistake. What I understand is that they will kill you before you even get the chance to look at them. The moment Boko Haram sees me, they will kill me. Because I cannot run anymore. Hanatu's life has been upended. And she will never be the same. Well, I thank God I was freed from Boko Haram. But I don't enjoy life. I lost a leg. My amputated leg is always in pain because I wasn't given proper medical attention. I'm always in pain. Honestly, I don't enjoy life. Following the abductions of the Chibok girls in 2014, there was a push from the international community to help. Years later, the attention on Boko Haram has waned, but the problem has not. As David Otto mentioned, Boko Haram's grip on Nigeria has loosened a little bit, but the extremist group continues to carry out raids in villages. In late April this year, there are reports that eight people were killed after militants attacked a military base in Borno State. People in Nigeria continue to live in fear. So what can the international community do to help? I turned to Dr. Fatima Akilu of the Neem Foundation. She said it's important that we continue to shed light on this ongoing problem. I think the more we talk about them, the more we talk about trauma as a central part of the recovery from captivity and as, as a central plank in rebuilding communities. Um, I, I think uh, the better it is for us uh, also 
for policymakers to understand the importance of supporting uh, programs that focus on trauma. She also says that we need to find ways to help invest in programs that are helping to rehabilitate survivors. Also to talk about uh, really the importance of mental health, importance of people, especially in Africa and sub-Saharan Africa, uh, studying mental health so that we have more practitioners that can actually provide these kinds of services. Uh, Organizations who want to support, uh, expand uh, the opportunities for organizations that work in mental health and conflict so that they can be able to provide uh, more services. And also people who fund us and invest in us, if they can look at it in more long-term ways, uh, a lot of times, Programs are only funded for a year or two. So you, uh, when you're talking about programs uh, that deal with uh, trauma and mental health, uh, a year or two is not enough for most people to get over their, their, their mental health issues. So you need much more longer term um, programs. And I think not just for funders, for policymakers, but for governments as well. So just to highlight it and to keep talking about it and keep prioritizing mental health. As I wrapped up this story on the Chibok girls and Boko Haram, I took a moment to reflect and realize that even if there comes a time when Boko Haram is fully dismantled, there are people who will continue to live with the wounds caused by the extremist group. Some of the scars are physical, but others are invisible, like deep emotional trauma rooted in thousands of people who have been touched by Boko Haram. Their campaign of terror doesn't just affect those ripped from their beds in the middle of the night. The fear extends and expands across communities that have been torn apart. So while it might not be in the headlines we read today, tomorrow, next week, or even next month, it doesn't mean it's an issue that no longer exists. Global News What Happened To is written and produced by me, Erica Vela, with producer Dila Velazquez. Our audio producer is Rob Johnson. Also, thanks goes to Drew Hasselbeck, supervising national online journalist for Global News. A special thanks goes to Brennan Leffler and Kabiru Anwar for their help contributing to this episode. Thanks goes to Stephanie D'Souza for editing assistance. And also, thanks goes to Kella and Stephanie for their voice work. Let us know what you thought of this episode and please share it with a friend. It will help us grow the show and bring you more incredible stories. You can also help us by giving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. You can also reach out to me personally. We're always looking for stories. So if there's a new story you want us to revisit, you can reach me on Twitter at Erica Vela or email me at erica.vela at globalnews.ca. Thanks so much for listening and we'll see you next time. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. 
<laughs> For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.